you know, racism is a principality that has outlived in America every move of God that's existed. So I think we like that, that we got to pay attention to that and the ways the church, you know, can lead in terms of repentance and reconciliation. You're listening to The Profile. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowle. The Profile is a show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, their faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, as well as all of the latest news, reviews, columnists and much more. Plus, there's great new digital content uploaded daily to our website. To get full access wherever you are in the world, there are print and digital subscription options available. Get the magazine delivered directly to your door or access all of the latest content via your computer, smartphone or the Premier Christianity app. Head over to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe for more information. On today's show, I'm speaking to John Tyson, the Australian-born pastor of Church of the City, New York, which he started from his apartment in Manhattan 16 years ago, aged just 28. Today is a thriving church of 1,500 people, and John is a well-known author and international speaker. We'll be chatting about what drew him to the city that never sleeps, leading through lockdown, and why he's less interested in protecting his own reputation than following after God's heart. Let's listen in now. I'd love it if you just tell us, to begin with, a little bit of your story. How did you come to know and love Jesus? You know, um, I became a Christian in a Pentecostal youth revival uh, in Australia on the weekend I turned 17. Uh, I grew up with uh, godly parents. Um, I definitely had a rebellious streak in me. And they basically said to me when I was 13, you don't have to come to church if you don't want to. And so I didn't come. I think they were trying to take away my ability to rebel. Um, I started going out with a girl um, who attended this youth group. And she basically said, if you want to go out with me, you need to come along to this. I went along to it. And I honestly thought Christianity was boring. I thought it was about moralism. I knew a bunch of people who were hypocrites and I didn't want anything to do with it. And I just met these kids who were passionate for Jesus. They would get up at four o'clock, pray for revival in their high schools. It was, a, it was a genuine move of God. There's almost 40 people in full-time ministry around the world from that season of youth group that I was in. So I'm so grateful to be a part of that. Uh, that's in a church that is now called um, Planet Shakers in Australia. So a guy named Russell Evans led me to Christ, discipled me, gave me an impartation, I genuinely believe, of the gift of faith. And um, I just was ushered into the kingdom of God with just joy and wonder. So that's it, the old youth group conversion. That's phenomenal that there are so many of your peers from that one youth group that are still really going strong with Jesus. That's I've spent probably 25 years trying to understand the conditions spiritually that created that because it was something extraordinary. And even when I meet folks today, we're all kind of shaking our heads going like, what? did God do? And is it possible to learn any principles from that so that we can, you know, see that kind of fruit again in ministry? So Yeah, definitely. I should imagine youth leaders around the world are but like, can we please bottle that? Like, you know, yeah, <laughs> how <definitely>. can we? <laughs> and so what happened next? Was it, was it plain sailing all the way for you? You gave your heart to Jesus at 16 and, and never looked back? Well, I, so I dropped out of high school when I was 16 to do an apprenticeship as a butcher. So by training, I am a butcher. But I just felt called into the ministry. I'd signed a legal contract as an apprentice, which meant I had to do that through the time I was 20. And I basically spent three years um, asking God to get me out of butchering so that I could go to Bible school and uh, go into the ministry. I, I, something really significant happened in my life that changed me forever. I was at a big youth rally uh, in Sydney walked out into the field praying and it had what I can only describe as like sort of like a vision for my life. It was like a God showing me a picture of my future. And it was a call to serve God in the United States. And I went to my youth pastor and said, Hey, look, I've just had this supernatural encounter with God. I feel like God's calling me to America. Just very graciously said, why would God send you to America? It's filled with seminaries pumping out leaders. You need to stay here in Australia. And I remember thinking, that's probably true, but I've just had this encounter. So I spent three years 
I fasted one day a week praying, God, if it's from you, open a door for me, like Paul prayed, and a door for effective ministry in America. And then one day I was at the butcher shop. My dad calls me and he says, uh, just out of the blue, hey, John, I know you want to go to Bible college. I've got a friend who wants to give you a scholarship. There's only one condition. Are you willing to go to America to do your training? And I was just like, come on. So yeah, I, I got this scholarship to study theology. I moved to the US in 1997. So I've been here 25 years. And I just felt like it was a door to my destiny in a way I can't explain. And uh, I met a, a beautiful girl on my first week of doing a tour of the grounds of the Bible college. And we have been married for 23 years, got two adult kids in university and um, really, really grateful for that. So that was the next season. It was this sense of call out of the butcher shop where I learned a ton of lessons um, into what I perceived to be my ministry call. So studying theology, then working in several churches, and ultimately it led me 16 years ago to move to New York City. Right. So you didn't head straight from Adelaide to New York then? If I knew what I knew now, I would have made a direct leap. Would you? Prob- yes. But I, I mean, I love this city, but I, I probably wouldn't. Uh, have had the character or the necessary leadership skills and gifting. So, you know, a lot of our time um, is is spent being prepared. Jesus did, you know, 90% of his life was in obscurity for 10% public ministry. And, um, you know, we often try and reverse that dynamic. I'm definitely grateful for those formative years. I had some mentors who confronted me over stuff that needed to be developed, gave me opportunities that I didn't deserve so I could grow my gifts. And uh, yeah, so I did a a little bit of a tour in the southern part of the United States. I lived in Atlanta, Nashville, Dallas, uh, Orlando, Florida, and then I headed up to New York. So, and was New York always the dream? Did you? It was, you know, the draw of the big city. What was it about New York that, that made you want to plant a church there? Well, I came up here in 2001. I was on staff at a church. We were building out a prayer ministry. 9-11 had just happened. And they said, hey, let's go up. I think Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire, which is a book by Jim Simbola, had come out. And everybody was talking about you know, building a house of prayer. So we said, hey, let's go up and go to one of their prayer meetings. So I, I came up there. Um, we stayed in Times Square. I'm two blocks right now from Times Square. It's just behind me. And I remember just thinking, what is this place? I'd never been anywhere like it. I'd always loved cities, always loved the idea of, you know, like, like the urban life. Stayed up all night walking around praying in this and just, just mesmerized. And then I felt bad because the next night we had wonderful tickets for Les Mis and I slept through the whole thing because I was so tired. That woke up within me in 2001, this sense of vision and excitement to pastor in a place like New York. I I tell you, I remember being a teenager in Adelaide, walking down the street and then seeing someone come from an upstairs apartment above a restaurant and walk down onto the street. I was about 14. And I just remember thinking consciously for the first time, you mean you can live in a city, like on a main street in a city. And I remember thinking in my heart, I will have that life. Originally it was just the massive humanity. I felt like, you know, Jesus weeping over the city. Like, look at the crowds. Uh, New York is one of the most densely populated cities on planet earth per square mile. And where we stayed uh, in the middle of Manhattan is definitely like that. I just felt my heart stirred for need. Back then in 2001, there was very, very few church plants in New York. I think a lot of folks had, you know, fled the city because it was so godless. Now, obviously there was like minorities, leaders in the boroughs, faithfully serving Jesus, crying out, contending for the city. But in terms of Manhattan, there was a huge need there. So when I sort of got old enough in my mid-20s, I was asking the question, whose permission do I need to start a church? There was one place I wanted to go, and New York was it. And uh, so when I was 28, we sold our house, gave the money away, like we read about in the book of Acts, and just started a church out of my apartment in the Upper West Side. And it's just been a wild ride ever since then. Wow, that is that's a big thing at twenty eight to just be like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna plant a church and not only plant a church, I'm gonna plant a church in, you know, one of the biggest cities on the planet. You must have had some trepidation in doing that, or no, nothing at all. Were you just like, yep, this is what God's got for me. I'm I'm gonna go for it. Well, I mean, I should have had more trepidation if I knew what I was getting into. I mean, I think 
part of it was the confidence of youth. You know, I mean, it was just like pure naivete. I mean, I meet people in their twenties now saying they're planning in New York and I'm like, Oh gosh, you know, like I, I imagine how people perceived me when I came in. Yeah, I definitely, I, I had confidence. It wasn't arrogance. It wasn't apathy. I think it was divine confidence. You know, I think like a lot of folks in ministry felt like I needed confirmation that I should do this. There's a lot of ungodly reasons to move to New York. And so, you know, I did this 40 day fast. I was like, God, I just need to hear from you. I need like a sign. And I remember on the last day of the fast, I was coming in to have dinner that, you know, like it, it's over. And I went to my mailbox and somebody had written us a large check and in it, it said, pay off your debts and do whatever's in your heart. And I just felt like that was like, man, this was the final confirmation that we needed. So I came in with a very strong sense of call. When I got to New York, it, getting there was all excitement and wonder and joy. And we're doing this thing with a team and it's going to be amazing. When I got there, that's where I think like the fear of God sort of hit me and the size of the need. And that first year was definitely very, very overwhelming. I, I didn't understand contextualization. You know, I didn't understand even what a New Yorker was. I'd been living in the southern part of the United States. Maybe it's like somebody who lives way up north in England, you know, like getting dropped in the middle of London. It's kind of like such culture shock, so different. So I definitely did some unlearning, repentance. God definitely humbled me in some very, very profound and painful ways and then sort of rebuilt after the disorientation uh, into a church that uh, could sort of serve the city. I think another huge factor that genuinely transformed my ministry. In 2006, I got invited into uh, a mentoring program with Tim Keller. It's called the Redeemer Fellows Program. Back then, Tim hadn't really written anything. He wasn't a best-selling author. He was kind of like a New York secret. And so I, I went through a year with him and I just never, again, coming from primarily a Pentecostal suburban megachurch sort of environment, I just never heard teaching like this. And I remember listening to one of his talks called The Gospel in Yourself. And it was on Isaiah 6 about a God quake. And I remember having to stop and sit down while I was listening to it and just saying, what is this? And uh, yeah, so being invited into that and then taking hopefully the best of the charismatic tradition, hunger for prayer, gift of faith, believing for the tangible presence of God, and then combining it with that sort of cultural sophistication, biblical teaching, pastoral understanding of the human heart. I think since then, I've, I've basically spent the last 15 years trying to integrate, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit and that sort of really, really thoughtful teaching. So that shaped me very early on. And when, when we get to heaven and the rewards for ministry are handed out, Tim Keller would genuinely receive a large portion of, of the rewards for the ministry that I've been, been in, really changed my life. It was interesting. I was listening to um, one of your sermons talking about your mentoring with Tim Keller and you said something really interesting. Um, you said that very early on in the mentoring process, he warned you about settling Christians too quickly, too comfortably in your church and, yes. um, and how that can, you know, as Christians, we can become too comfortable in our own company with other Christians. And that kind of almost makes it more difficult for us to, to, to get out and, and reach the lost in our communities. And, and you said something really interesting. You said, I'm not even sure if I agree with him, but it's something I've been wrestling with ever since. Do you want to expand a little bit on that for me? Well, uh, so I preached that same sermon four times on Sunday and in the next two services, I just said I agree with him. And then I just was, <laughs> I think I was, I think I was trying to soften it because, you know, it's it's such a contrarian idea. But here's basically what he said. It was from his perspective. He'd been in New York since 1989. At that point, I think the the percentage of evangelicals in Manhattan was like 1.8 percent or two percent. So I mean, like we send people to the 1040 window for those sort of percentage of of, of Christians. So he said he saw when the crime started to go down, you know, New York City over a period of 16 years had a 70% reduction in crime. A lot of it was uh, a prayer movement, some of it led by uh, a gentleman named uh, uh, Bishop Joseph Matera out in Brooklyn, who's one of the city fathers. They had a really potent, powerful prayer ministry asking for a reduction of crime. Crack had come in and just decimated the city. Um, and then they got a mayor in Giuliani who really transform quality of life crime in the city. So you have these two factors coming together. So as a result, there was an influx 
of Christians moving into New York that Tim had never seen. So then all of a sudden you started having options for attending churches. And so he basically came along and said one of the, the, the patterns he saw that was unhealthy was that Christians would come move from another part of the United States, pick from these new smorgasbord of church plants, get in a group, and then never really interact with the lost people of New York City. And so uh, he said, uh, he actually said it very strongly. He said, the worst thing that can happen for Christians who move from the South is they come to New York, get a church they like that reminds them of where they came from, get settled with a group of Christian friends and turn their lives inward. And, uh, you know, my talk was in the context of evangelism and just saying, I definitely see that. New York can be a hard place. It's transient. It's tempting. And so, and it's, it's very, very uh, intense. So a lot of times when Christians finally get some people that love them, they can share their hearts with you. The gravity can collapse inward and we need that propulsion of love to point us out. So I agree with him more than I don't agree with him, though. I do think some of the dynamics of the city have changed a little bit that would perhaps soften that critique, but it was a, a potent force. And again, just showed his heart for evangelism mm. and his love for the city. And I always love that uh, about Tim Keller, his passion to reach people far from God who don't know Jesus in New York rather than just build a large evangelical church. So I was that really shaped me and still you know, impacts my thinking today. I think, to be fair, it, it applies to, to Christians everywhere, doesn't it? Um, when you were talking in your sermon, you said the, the reason you slightly disagreed with it was that sort of axe idea of it's important that we, we come together as Christians, that we continue meeting together as Christians, which, of course, it is. But like you said, the flip side of that is we become so comfortable together and all our needs are met in, in the church that we, we begin to look inwards. And I don't think that is a thing that is particular to any one place uh, you know i've certainly seen it in everywhere i've been so yes i totally agree i don't have that sort of like urban elitism you know what i mean like i love new york because it's become my home i've raised my family here so i have a little bit of city pride but i i'm certainly not like everybody should move to cities and i'm like you know what a lot of people leave in the cities for good reason right now so i'm like thrive wherever god has called you and live on mission there I'm originally from London and I, I now live in deepest Cornwall. Um, and if you'd have asked me at 18, if I'd have ever ended up in the countryside, I'd have said, mm. absolutely not. I'm a committed mm. Londoner. I'd never, ever, mm. I went to uni in London. I grew up in London. I love London. I never wanted to go anywhere else. I don't know how I ended up here other than it must have been God. And, and you're right. It, it's interesting, those dynamics. And what I think what I've seen is that um, the things that you take for granted in one place, you know, can can be really different in another and in the city it's where I grew up it was very easy to access events para church gatherings wider church gatherings my youth group yeah. we go to all sorts of different churches all the time here um 400 miles away from the capital not a lot goes on but God is still doing things and and mm, I'm very yes, grateful yes. he calls people to <laughs> all sorts of places yes amen <laughs> but I mean coming coming from London to here and having friends who have come here from all around the world, I do know what it's like to sort of move to a place and not be from that place. And I wonder how that, how you were received as a Australian in New York. Did did people sort of say, "Why are you planting a church here when you're not even from here?" Or was it always quite a cool? No, thing I mean, I think similar. I think similar to London, New York is an international city. I mean, nobody, New York is is, is and there's no such thing as the new york there's only your experience of new york and then there's a hundred new yorks i have spent my last 16 years pastoring in manhattan it is one particular slice of new york city um so manhattan in particular is a very transient very international city so you know when i was in the south and i would go to a restaurant people would say oh you're from australia i've always wanted to go there in new york people don't even ask where you're from you know, so there's not that sense of people aren't even that interested. They're just so busy mm. getting on with their lives and they anticipate people being from everywhere. You know, I mean, uh, New York is the place where someone from Iran marries someone from Korea and nobody blinks. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's such an, such an international place. So most of the shock I got was not that I'm from Australia, but I did get a lot of shock that you're an evangelical pastor and you're starting a church in Manhattan. Mm. Like I did repeatedly have people say, why would you do that? Like, what are you doing here? Like, we don't need you here. And in one very, very particularly 
we we had something that went a little bit viral. Uh, someone did a story on us that went viral, and the pushback on it. We ended up on like one of the US's like most aggressive anti-Christian, like mocking Christian websites, and uh, they were very very unhappy with our presence. And I'm just like, whatever. I, I love it here, and I think I think two things. Um, one, if you have a sense of call, whatever it is that makes a New Yorker a New Yorker, that's in me. Like whatever it is that attracts a certain, and there's probably six subsets of personalities that come to New York and thrive. I am absolutely one of those subsets. And then, you know, the, the, the typical term real recognizes real. I think people in New York realize, hey, man, the thing that made me come here is in this guy too. So I think there's like some sort of mutual respect that New Yorkers give to each other. Secondarily, though, I think they sense I was getting a haircut this morning. The reason my hair is so short right now, I was talking to my barber and what should have been a 20-minute thing turned into an hour because he was like, how do you deal with anxiety? And he looked up one of my books on and he was like, you know, I wasn't aware that your books were so religious. How do you find peace? And it, it literally turned like into a, like a little appointment just because he was so overwhelmed. So I think people sense he loves the things we love in his spirit, but he's figured out something about not being controlled. He has a freedom about those things. And I think people are curious to that. So that's why I think in some sense I've been effective. It's showing the beauty and power of Jesus and the gospel over the good things of New York that often enslave people. And so that, that to me, there's been that sense of connection. This dude gets my heart, but he can offer me something the city can't. And obviously that's the good news of the gospel. Yeah, and I guess for, you know, wherever you are, if you are in the place that the God has appointed you to be, then you would hope mm. that that supernaturally comes out. And, and that is that, you know, what people recognise in their in their spirit, even if they don't know that that's what they're recognising in you. Yes, That's God's yes. favour going before you, isn't it? Because that's yeah. where he's called you to be and where he wants you to minister. So what have been some of your biggest challenges in church leadership? You've been doing it for 16 years now. What, what's Tell us some of the highs and the lows. I think some of the greatest challenges, you know, in my particular context, I think it's becoming true a lot more is just, just transience. You know, I, I just think that people don't stay where they're from a lot of times. They move all the time. There's a, a guy named uh, Zygmunt Bauman, who was a, an atheist Jewish philosopher. He wrote a series of books. And um, liquid, liquid love, liquid lives. And he wrote basically about how nobody puts down deep attachments anymore and nobody builds strong ties to one another. So they're always uh, impermanent. They're always easily removed. And, you know, when your greatest command as a pastor is to cultivate love for Jesus and sacrificial love for one another, it makes it very hard when no one wants to do the sacrifice for one another part. So I think people say all the time, you know, do you ever think there's like a big scandal coming to your ministry? There's a lot of leaders who fall. And I'm like, A, if you understood my wife, you'd realize probably not. But more than anything, I say, no, I think it's more just like a tiredness of people perpetually leaving. And this was, you know, New York is transient in best of times. That accelerated during COVID. I mean, the city emptied out. And our church had hundreds of people move away. And many of them didn't communicate. And I just see them on Instagram, living in other states and going to other churches. And that's painful. So that was hard. Um, it's painful for those people too. But, you know, I obviously felt it as a pastor. I think there's such a suspicion now around authority figures. You know, um, in other times, the church was seen as a source of good in the world, bringing at least moral instruction and hopefully love and charity and care for the poor. Now I think the church is seen for the most part as a, a white hegemonic power that's just wrought tremendous destruction in the world. So again, there's a kind of suspicion towards the church as an institution and its authority. Um, that makes it very, very hard to pastor people, to win their hearts out of that cynicism. There's a lot of barriers that I've certainly didn't even used to experience 10 years ago. I think so many people are wrestling with anxiety. You almost feel like you have to have some of the qualifications of a, a therapist or a counselor, you know, mental health is a huge crisis. And I want to be able to respond to that properly. Now, often proper care is sending them to like proper counselors and therapists, but that sort of therapeutic tone entering into pastoring is a very real challenge. Maybe the only other thing I would say is like the giant winds of secularism, like overall, yeah, Charles Taylor talks about like the eclipses of secularism where there's things that get in the way so that things are blocked. 
I definitely think like those secular eclipses make it very, very hard to mm-hmm. seek God in everyday life. Um, they make it hard for people to believe that believing that Jesus is the only way is not an oppressive thing. So yeah, a lot of those secular dynamics, but I will say this, I, I am a, an eternal optimist. I, you know, I've got a, a resurrection lens. So I'm like, yes, but like, what a time to be alive. I'm at, I'm alive right now at the time of one of the greatest declines in the Western church. Praise God. You either look at it as like a tremendous opportunity with gratitude to be entrusted or you hang your head and you weep in despair. You know, and I may thank you, Lord, for the opportunity and uh, help me to be faithful in this time. So the only last thing I would, I would say, which is a particular one, pastoral burnout. I think there's so many folks leaving the ministry right now. New York Times just did an article talking about how politics and the pandemic, like the perfect storm of making people go, I love Jesus, but I just don't want to do this for, for a, a vocational calling. So those are probably the biggest ones, yeah. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. Yeah, well, I wonder if that's an extension that, you know, the last couple of years we've seen this sort of massive, massive rise in the volume of conversation about deconstruction and people walking away from the evangelical church, especially in the States. That has got to have taken its toll on pastors and leaders as well. Like you say, with the pandemic, with politics, with all of the scandals that, that that seem to come up with increasing regularity. It's really worrying, isn't it? But um, reading your your latest book, Beautiful Resistance, I, I read it recently. And the, the introduction in particular really moved me. Uh, you were mm-hmm. talking quite a lot about retracing the steps of um, Bonhoeffer in Germany when he mm-hmm. was trying to build a Christian community to to stand up to the evils of the Nazi regime. And you spoke so eloquently and passionately about your deep love for the church, capital C. Mm. And, and, th- and that is a lot of where Beautiful Resistance came from, wasn't it? That sort of call mm. to how do we build a Christian community that that stands against all of that, mm. the anxiety, the depression, the COVID, the politics, the, the things mm. that are trying to fracture us, the burnout, the exhaustion, and say, this is what it looks like to be part of a community of people that love Jesus. And how does that you know give life to the world around mm. that? Mm. Is that yes, something I mean, that's burning on your heart? You still yeah, think? no, it is. And it's interesting, like um, the close of that book where I retrace where Bonhoeffer stayed in New York City. That's like the epilogue of the book. Um, I was just there for dinner on Monday night, walking around that neighborhood again. And I, I, I said to my life, this is where Bonhoeffer lived when he was here. And, you know, I, I think I'm one of those people where if you ask me what of the deepest wounds I've ever received in my life, like the stuff that makes me just want to like get in the fetal position and weep out of pain, those wounds come from people in the church. But then if you ask me what's my general experience of the church, my general experience of the church is I've never been so cared for. I've never been so encouraged. I've had my bills paid. I've had cars given to me. I've had uh, money to buy a place in New York given to me. I have had prayers prayed for me, songs sung over me. My experience of the people of God is it's, it's been as good as the pain that I've received. The thing is, Jesus loves the church. You know, we're never called to build the church. Jesus said, you seek first the kingdom, I'll build the church. And I think a lot of times we've gotten disillusioned. We're disillusioned with what we've built, but not with what Jesus has built. Mm. We're disillusioned with the human efforts of, and often because we've been seduced by power and coercion, the flesh is operating. When I read the epistles, Ephesians 3, that said the church is the manifold wisdom of God on display to the principalities and powers. It may not look like much, but when Christians gather around a table, eat a meal, confess their sins, pray for one another, ask how they can meet each other's needs, create space of acceptance and love. There's very few places in the world 
where that sort of community happens. And I'm like, I want more of that. I think the church is equally as much a part of the solution as, as it is the problem. I think the way that I'm wired is I say, I want to help build the alternative, not just tear down what's broken. And that's, again, that's a part of my wiring. I realize people have experienced genuine trauma that they've been hurt and they need healing. My question is, what do you do when you get healing? Do you stay a critic? Jesus goes in hard in the churches on revelation. You know, he says, I'll literally remove your lamp from its stand. I'll get rid of you. He says, I'll vomit you out. I got space for uh, criticism of the church because Jesus does the same thing, but he also says, be zealous and repent. Those I love, I call to repent. And, um, and then his invitation is always the same, which is, behold, I stand at the door and the knock. I just want to come in. So to me, if we're in a moment of deconstruction where everybody's angry and challenging what's happening, are they still listening for the knock where Jesus says, I just want fellowship within you? And a lot of folks are too busy tearing things down to hear the knock of Jesus, to come back in for intimacy. And I guess I'm trying to elevate that knock to see what Jesus can do if he's let back inside the church. Yeah, and, and listening to your your podcast, your, your call to your own church, obviously this year is let's seek after what God is doing in, in, in our church at this time. And beginning of the new year is a wonderful time for us all to, to stop and to do that and to, and to think again, you know, what is it that God wants to say to us and what does he want us to do in our own churches and our own communities, our own lives? What's he asking for from us? I was also really pleasantly surprised by your humility as a prominent church leader in, in actually, you know, saying on a, on a public sermon, I am bothered about the fact that we only baptised nine people last year. For me, it was very refreshing. You don't often hear large church leaders saying, hang on a minute, I want to stand up and publicly say that there is something that I'm concerned about and I want to like issue this out as a challenge. Did you think about like, you know, what? Yes, that was very... Criticise this is going to go around the world. I, I mean, how do I say it? I mean, I had shame. I was embarrassed. I was disappointed in my own leadership. You know, our church is a, is, a, is a beautiful church. I mean, we do three hours of prayer every day. I mean, like we are committed to the things of God. There's, there's things we do really, really well. But somehow, you know, and like that's not an average reflection. It was such a shock to me. I was just like, that can't be right. I was like, yeah, no, that's right. Now, again, there's a million factors. We didn't even meet for half a year. We're on the year. But I'm like, no, 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 no. That I'm not taking the easy way out with all of these. Like, Pastor, I just want to sit here for a minute and just ask, does our heart match the heart of Jesus? And the answer is no. We've collapsed inward to get through the pandemic. And we've got to lift our eyes beyond this. That was painful for me. Like, man, I wept over that. I was, I was at home, you know, talking to my wife, just going, this can't be it, you know? Now look, and again, as soon as I say this stuff, like the response I've had has been so jarring because some people are like, you're not even control of salvation, God's, and I'm like, you guys are all missing the point. This was a moment of vulnerability as a leader, being honest with our congregation whose hearts want to do this, but just saying, let's talk about whether or not we did do this. And so that was a, a painful critique. And again, I, I struggled to get the tone right I didn't want to be hard on our church. I'm not here to beat the sheep, but I did want to highlight the urgency of God's heart. And again, the opportunity we have, there's 23.5 million people in the New York City metro area. And I was just like, Jesus, I just believe you have more for us in terms of loving people in your kingdom than that. So it was hard to preach that. Hopefully people were inspired. And, and again, already the reports I've got of people who've reached out to their non-believing friends, it's just been so encouraging. So yeah, people respond when you tell them the truth. And sometimes you've got to get over your own concerns or self-preservation or image management and do that for the good of the kingdom of God. And hopefully, you know, I'm grateful to have had God's grace and courage to do it in that moment. So yeah. and uh, So yeah. thanks for sharing that with all of your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I also genuinely think, you know, on the other side of the world, going to a church for 150 people, that, that you, you're right. Honesty and vulnerability and leadership is incredibly important in the church. And I'm encouraged to, when I hear prominent leaders like yourself 
being prepared to take a, a hard look at their own performance and the performance of the churches, because I think sometimes otherwise we we end up with this impression that those bigger churches like yours and the other mega churches around the world are somehow perfect. And and that's it, you know, like you say, it's it's right to get the tone right and to not be critical and not to beat people over the head, but it's it's also okay, isn't it, to ask yourself with the Holy Spirit those hard questions. Um, am I where you want me to be, God? Is there more I can do? Have we missed something? I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, whether you're a church of a hundred people or whether you're a church of a hundred thousand. I'm not in the business of doing brand or image management. I'm in the business of like leading our church into God's mission. And again, I could have presented like a year-end review that was like, we spent 20,000 hours in the prayer room. We served all of our mission. Like there's so many good stats. And all that would have done is just shown us that we're covering up our neglect of the heart of Jesus. And so again, I think good leadership should be willing to lean into those hard things. And I'm grateful for, again, a responsive church when you do so. Mm. I am guessing from listening to you preach that you're quite an avid reader. Would that be right? Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I love reading, yes. Do you? How many books a year do you think you read? You know, I used to try, so I can I can tell you exactly. Can uh, you? Pr- oh, my goodness. I mean, it'll probably surprise you. I read and take notes, read and file, as John Maxwell said in my early 20s. So I've been doing that. You know, maybe... I'm just trying to think pre-pandemic, maybe 200 books a year, three books a week. But to give to give qualifiers, you know, I'm an empty nester. Both of my kids are gone. Every night I have time free to read. You know, I'm very, very discerning. I, I like I limit my media consumption to probably under two hours a week total. So I'm just basically like stealing time away from like very normal and often, you know, morally neutral activities. Um, to read. I honestly think a big part of it, you know, I always did well in school. I didn't drop out of high school because I was struggling with my grades. I dropped out of high school because I had a really visionary boss who gave me a vision for my life more compelling than university. But I do, I think I probably felt like I had some catching up to do when everybody else was in uni and I was like chopping up dead animals. And so when I actually had a freed up schedule, I, I was curious about that. And just, you know, just sort of started reading. So I try and read broadly and I, I primarily read out of passion, read for joy. It's my basic, I don't know if you call it technique. I read three books at a time and I read one chapter a day of each of those books. So I, in the morning, at lunch and at night, a typical book has 10 chapters. If you do it like that, you would knock out three books every 10 days or so. Then I normally have one or two other books that are like serious books that I'm sort of working through. But I'll tell you this, in the pandemic last year, I read 28 books. That's it. And here's what I decided to do. Go back and reread classics and master the material, not just get a bunch of quotes out of it. And that was so life-giving. Look, I reread, uh, not not the whole thing, but the majority of Frederick uh, Beekness canon. And I didn't read a whole lot more. I reread uh, two books by Ronald Rollheiser and I just, I mean, sat with them and processed paragraphs. And so I think I'll definitely do something like that, which is, you know, have a season where I, you know, seasons of my year where I just take something and read through it very, very slowly, different, different sort of approach. So. That's so interesting. Most people I would have thought would have said, um, certainly for myself, read loads more during the pandemic because we weren't going out anywhere and you decided to oh, do Oh, I mean, I was, uh, no, I was like, man, I was in pastoral crisis mode. Like I, True. I have never worked so hard as I did during the pandemic. When I hear people say, oh yeah, it was like a, you know, when I hear pastors say, oh, it was just a great time with family. I was like, man, that was not my experience. I mean, First, you know, you got New York, you got people bleeding out with a global epicenter, trying to respond to all of that, navigate and pivot online, then the death of George Floyd, then trying to navigate all the racial complexities, then dealing with politics, Christian politics, then January 6th, all the crazy stuff that happened in the Capitol, then the second surge of like, it's just been a whirlwind. So yeah, I, I had to say to myself, hey, man, just slow down. This is what I was probably primarily trying to do, keep my heart alive. So I read the things that nurtured my spirit, not stuff that just filled my brain with stuff, you know, and it was really life-giving. And, and what, what was the, the hardest point for you in that 12 months? Riots during Black Lives Matter was definitely the hardest um, thing to navigate. 
I'd been reading about critical race theory for about five years before that, had studied critical theory, you know, was probably more well-read and understanding of most of like, A, in some sense, a little bit about what it is, B, what like the legitimate components of it are, and then C, what the threats to the Christian faith of it are. So I felt kind of like, you know, I almost did a talk on it. You know, I did a series a while back called The Controversial Jesus where I picked really hard issues. I almost did one on critical race theory, and I'm so glad I didn't. People didn't need academic analysis. People needed pastoral care. And I think for a lot of folks, it was a real awakening about the, the disproportionate effects of, of racial injustice and the ways it still manifests today. But that was like, you know, I've never received a level of accusation in ministry ever in my life like I did during that period. Part of it was like people needed lightning rod, you know, like you're a white pastor, like people needed scapegoat figures to sort of project and discharge their anger on. I I can handle that. I signed up for that as a leader, but it was just so the intensity, you know, I mean, we're still burying people from COVID and this is happening. I mean, it was just, it was so intense. And, uh, but I'm again, very, very grateful for a godly and supportive church for the most part. And, um, you know, for, for tight community and friends that were just like, Hey man, just stay the course, keep leading through this and, uh, you know, play the long game, which is always what I'm doing. I think one thing that makes me a somewhat effective leader is that my horizon and timeline are very different than often when I talk to other people, you know, I'm trying to figure out, I'm just turned 45. I'm like, trying to think about 20 years from now, not next year. And I'm trying to make, you know, you don't, I was saying to our men's group this morning, you don't sow and reap in the same season. And um, you shouldn't expect the harvest in the season that you sow. These things take time. So I'm trying to sow for 20 years from now, 10 years from now, five years from now. You know, the Bible speaks a lot about perseverance and considering it pure joy. Paul says glorying in our sufferings and so that that's the thing. And the other thing I would say that definitely helped me get through it was the idea of spiritual formation. I mean, if you have a formation lens that God's ultimate goal is to form you into the image of Jesus, then all of these things are opportunities to examine neglected parts of your heart, how much of the flesh is still within you. And I came out tired, but I came out I think genuinely my wife would say, who knows me the best, a more loving man because I went through all of that. And to me, that is, that is the stuff of life. So I would never want to go through that again. It was very painful and very hard. The fruit of it has been beautiful. I'm mm. grateful for that. You're um, as a church, you always seem very fast out of the gates. And I'm assuming a lot of this is credit to you on, on tackling those really hard hot potato topics. And, um, and, and also on your website, like you, you have sections on reconciliation and women in leadership and sexuality and gender. And I've heard you speak about those um, really tough topics very clearly, which is not always common in the church was that a conscious decision that you were like right we're just going to get out there this is where we stand on these things because we think they're important yeah i mean yeah people need leadership people you've got to help people on the issues that are affecting their faith and so like i I feel like that's a form of love you know failure to address the very things your people are talking about and wrestling with out of either a desire for fear, avoiding controversy or self-preservation. I've always thought in myself when I examine it, it's just a form of selfishness. And um, so I was just like, man, I I would rather just be honest and clear and try and provide leadership on this. I certainly haven't done it perfectly. And I'm sure I could do a better job, but I've at least, I think the one thing is have the courage to say, guys, we're going to talk about this. And you may disagree with me, but, you know, last night um, we do a thing called Welcome to Church and I host a Q&A and all of that. And um, I'm always surprised people go like, this was really amazing. There's very few environments where you can just put your hand up and ask any question. I, I guess I think I forget that. And, you know, I would rather have it out in the open. Otherwise it just, you know, turns into toxicity. You know, people mm-hmm. fill in their theology based on whatever the culture says rather than what God's word says. So. Yeah, again, it could be part of my personality makeup. It could be because I'm sort of like an easygoing Australian with a, the, you know, have a go mate sort of a mentality. But for whatever reason, I think that has been a little bit of a distinctive in our church, a willingness to lead on hard issues and provide clarity. As it calls back, kick back, like, have you received a lot of flack for it or are generally people 
appreciative of, of just knowing where you stand on those issues? I've absolutely received feedback. Yeah, I mean, like very, very negative feedback. But that comes with the territory. Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. You know, it says, uh, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. They crucified Jesus. I anticipate some measure of daily cross-bearing. Jesus says, I mean, this is the Beatitudes, leap for joy. And um, I don't like being criticized, but I will say this. Um, I do find in general that people respect my thoughtfulness on the issue. Mm. Even if they disagree with me, they'll say, yeah, but at least, at least you've thought it through. But I would say the same thing. People whose theology I disagree with, I, I respect somebody more who disagrees with me on issues, who's worked them out seriously than I do with somebody who agrees with me, who's never, who's just living off an instinct or a tradition. Mm. So hopefully that, that measure of respect is mutual. And so far it seems to have been. Yeah. I think um, it's, I was talking to a, a British author and youth leader earlier on this week called Rachel Gardner, who's just written a book about uh, talking to teenagers about sex. And we had a very similar conversation about sort of opening up those spaces in church for difficult conversations. Obviously, we were talking specifically about one issue there, but she was saying in her experience of leading a church with her husband, who's a vicar, um, she was saying in, in today's society, it's it's going to become more um, common that church leaders have congregations, whereas 20 years ago, you might have known what everyone in your congregation thought about a whole range of issues, largely depending on what denomination you were. That is going to become harder and harder uh, as people you know, live in a society where everyone has so many different views on everything. And she was saying yeah. it's going to become more critical for us in the church to find a way of rather than just saying from the front, you know, this is what we believe or not saying anything because those conversations are too difficult, but instead to try to create spaces where we can be clear about what we think the Bible says and where we stand, but also also respectfully discuss those views with people who may disagree with us. And I'm guessing in a in, in a in a very metropolitan city like New York, that's that's a really tough challenge, isn't it? To sort of to to be authentic and true to what you feel the Bible believes, but also to engage with a huge range of differing beliefs and viewpoints on a whole range of issues, even within the Christian community. I think the problem is, you know, you only get to preach 52 weeks a year and yet people take in hours of media content every day. Yeah. So they're disproportionately shaped and formed basically by secular ideologies. They're not primarily formed by God's word or sort of Christian worldview or theology so our stuff has to be potent and what i mean by that is if you're going to talk about it you're going to talk exactly about the absolute core of it because if you don't lean in and you're not clear people will just look for clarity in other places you know and it is there's definitely a pastoral challenge if i preach on sex people say all this church does is talk about sex and if i don't preach on it more they're like we never talk about things that are important to people's lives you know, don't try and do it all through the pulpit, you know, write about it, extra podcasts. I think those are those are the way forward. And then rely on people, like point people to resources for people for who this is their central life calling and issues, you know. So to me, curating resources is often just as important. So is there anything prophetically you think God is doing in the church at the moment that you'd, you'd like to share with us? Well, I mean, you know, it's it's hard not to sort of uh, prescribe out of my personal life themes, you know, but I, I would say this, God's heart is always uh, a first love church. That he always wants his church to, to turn back to him, to love him the way that they've been loved. And I, I definitely sense that, like God is drawing us back to himself. How do we get it? We've, we've had such a cultural orientation, such a reaction to the issues. We have to. We don't want to be tone deaf. We need to meet our moment. But I think a lot of times what got missed in that is we loved our neighbor more than we loved God. And that sort of disordered love will take a toll, even if it's legitimate, like for a season in like a crazy crisis. It's best when it's integrated. We're loving God through loving our neighbor. But so often, I think we're in so much shock and trauma and exhaustion. We, we, I don't think as a whole we were able to sort of effectively do that. So I sense God just drawing us back to himself. First love, Psalm 73, you know, getting in the temple, getting our perspective lifted, getting our eyes on him again. And, you know, obviously I'm a big believer in seeking God. Draw near to God and he would draw near to you. What an invitation. So meditating on that yesterday, just saying, I draw near to you, Lord. And then knowing he says, I'm drawing near to you, John. 
<laughs> don't you want a life where that drawing near meets in power? I do. I think that's a big thing. God's calling people back to himself. And again, I do think secondarily, um, I think God is doing a reckoning around race and justice. You know, racism is a principality that has outlived in America every move of God that's existed. How deep a principality that can make it and survive intact as a system through every move of God. So I think we like that, that we got to pay attention to that and the ways the church, you know, can lead in terms of repentance and reconciliation. I think the other thing I would say that when my heart has been turned more than ever is uh, to Gen Z. I think the typical thing that a guy like me and my location and my stage would be is to like keep trying to build a good big church in New York with a strong pulpit ministry. And I could probably do that for 20 years, you know, and uh, oh, I, the only thing I, I'm thinking about these days is like, how do we win these kids on TikTok to Jesus? Mm. You know, my son's 21, my daughter's 19. I think a lot about what formed their faith. And so I've got a massive push. My, I have a new youth pastor who's just moved into town. He literally landed last night and I've never been more excited about student ministry. So again, it's... um. We're losing in the U.S. 1.2 million kids out of the church every year, primarily because they just don't think it's relevant to their lives. What a sin to take the person of Jesus, the reality of the kingdom of God, and present it in such a way that a kid's like, that's just not that good. So I'm super passionate about that, and I'm more interested in youth work than I, I think I've ever been in my life, including when I was a youth worker. So. That's that's interesting to hear you say as a as a whole church leader because I th I think there's de there's definitely a lot of people in the church that would say one of the, one of the difficulties is that sometimes youth work gets sidelined a little bit mm -hmm. and is not given the prominence that it needs. But I mean, certainly here in the UK, people are making similar noises. Ch children and young people are leaving the church mm -hmm. in, in volumes we've never seen before. And at the mm -hmm. same time, and um, there's a a huge dearth of youth workers. I think that people are overwhelmed by, you know, you see these kids on their phones, they're living in a digital world, you know, they're all covered with tattoos. Like, like the, the, the acceleration even between millennials and Gen Z has been mm. quite extraordinary. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's this, whoever loves the teenager most will win their heart. Mm. Like at the end of the day, it's just, it's a ministry of love. It's a ministry of listening. It's giving them a sense. It's calling out the good, the possibility you see in them. It's creating space when they fail to not judge him, but to bring him in to show mercy. And I think the issues they're wrestling with are more complex and no other generation in history has wrestled with it. I think the solutions are the same. They may be harder to implement. It is just listening. It is love. It is belonging. It is an encounter with the Holy Spirit. It's getting him in the word of God. It primarily happens when you invite them in and create space for them to do it. So I, I am um, heartbroken and very optimistic all at the same time. That was John Tyson speaking to me, Emma Fowle, here on Premier Christian Radio. We hope you enjoyed this interview. For hundreds more conversations just like this one, you can download the profile as a podcast. Just search for the profile wherever you normally get your podcast from or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. <laughs>